0: We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Dushensky, Culture Editor here at the Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today is not an edition of You're Wrong because I could never replace the one and only Molly Hemingway, <laughs> but I am, in fact, joined by the one and only David Harsani, Senior Editor at the Federalist. David, welcome to Federalist Radio Hour. <laughs>
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I, uh, you're such a professional. The way you 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 do that intro, I always forget <laughs> all of that stuff, and I have to like stick it in with audio collage, etc.
0: <laughs> you get, yeah. You guys just roll in.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm, it's I'm funny. I'm learning
0: now also that you don't you don't determine a topic until about two minutes before recording, which I think is not a bad way to do it. You got to keep it fresh.
1: Yeah, a couple of weeks ago, we were, we got into a fight trying to figure out what to talk about—an argument—and and Molly yelled, "I don't even care what you think." <laughs> and I, and I started the podcast like that. So I was thinking that we should probably, her and I should probably record our planning session as, and then I could just stick it into the podcast. It might be interesting.
0: Yeah, and don't tell her either. She'll find out because <laughs> she gets emails.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Um. Well, yeah, I'm going to guess that you wanted to talk about candidate quality and Molly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, no, I forgot. We got pretty mad about stuff. She got pretty mad about something. The problem is that when I get worked up, she always gets calm and it makes me it just gets me all riled up how calm she is when I'm angry. But I think the reverse is also true. So I don't know.
0: Well, actually, this is something that I wanted. This is actually probably a good topic. I saw this happen a couple of weeks ago where a younger writer um, I think was sort of aghast that they had been mentioned by another young writer. And it's kind of funny because your show, to me, feels a lot like the uh, general vibe that the internet had kind of in the aughts. It was sort of like i don't know the word i'm looking for like it was very combative but in a almost friendly sense and then it seems like at some point like maybe around 2012 maybe it was 2015 and trump and everything it just took a really dark turn where nobody could take a joke anymore nobody could take criticism whereas in the aughts the blog the bloggers were just like going at each other's throats day in and day out saying dumb stuff of course um but it was more convivial and and not in like a corrupt way but more convivial in a we're gonna hash. This outweigh
1: no absolutely i sometimes i think that the blog like those few years where blogs ru- you know ruled were were the highlight of, of my career really where <laughs> you could because so i started out you know there were no they weren't even really i mean i guess they were but who knows they were it wasn't a big deal even the comment sections um it was just a column so you wrote it you sent it out into the void and you didn't even know what people really thought i guess they'd send you a letter or call you occasionally or send you an email Um, And but then when blogs came about, you could really dive into topics and there were just a lot of interesting people out there, a lot of micro focus on certain issues. You could it was just it was it was incredible. It was wild. And there were a lot of debates between people who disagreed ideologically, you know, and that sort of bled into the Twitter early Twitter as well. But now at some point, probably you're right around 2015 or whenever that just went away. Now it's just like flybys, like LOL, or, you know, like, you, you know, you fascist, you idiot, you, whatever you groomer and people just go on their own way and everyone's siloed now. And you don't really get those. I can't even think of any real big policy debates between the two sides anymore. It just almost doesn't exist in the way it did during the blog era.
0: Yeah, and Matt Iglesias recently published a What I Learned from Vox thing over at Slow Boring, and he basically said that Vox had been a failure. Even though Vox Media is now a massive company, he repeatedly explained why, in his view, Vox failed at its mission. Um, but of course, people like Iglesias and Ezra Klein and Andrew Sullivan, big people in the the blogging era, um, are still around they're still and in some cases like the case of ezra klein like extremely successful andrew sullivan is one of the most popular substacks, even though he kind of got pushed out of new york magazine but david you're one of the few people i know who actually has like had a a column like did you have x inches at any point in your career oh yeah. yeah see that's incredible oh yeah because it's so it's so recent but so different
1: yeah, I I, yeah, I got a job in, you know, I started out in sports writing and stuff like that. And after 9-11, I got interested in politics. But I got a job at the Denver Post, first as a Metro columnist. That was like a reported column uh, three times a week. And then I, I moved to the editorial page. And I, yeah, I had, I forgot what the inch number was. We yeah, had to fill that <laughs> hole. And I remember it was like around five, but because the paper kept shrinking, it was around 520 or 30 words. So I learned to really write in a way, you know, make one point, get out. Um, and a lot of the blogging that I, I loved it, but a lot of it is not disciplined writing. I would say it's more, much more conversational maybe, or I, I I am annoyed or I was even then, but quite often now, and I'm not saying I'm like, christopher hitchens or anything like that but the quality of writing didn't seem to matter anymore to people it was more just about getting all your thoughts out there and people would go on and on and on uh, i always used to think wow this person needs an editor like i'd read glenn greenwald in the old days i feel like this guy <laughs> oh, he really... still does <laughs> yeah yeah exactly but people got scared you know to tell him no and they, and no one took no for an answer and obviously you're on the internet like there are no inches it's forever it's you know you could write in perpetuity so um i don't even know what what, what how I start? Oh, yeah. So, I, yeah, I'd column inches. Uh, and, you know, when I was young, being like being George Will, you're like, I'm going to get this job and I'm going to sit at that newspaper for the rest of my life. And the bloggers came along and destroyed all that. Mm. But I I still loved it. I love the intellectual environment that, that, you know, that came about because of it. Uh, it's, it's incredibly like talented people that started out as bloggers. A lot of them are now writing for magazines and stuff like that. So, yeah.
0: I'm a big fan of Glenn. I feel like what we're doing here is is the way that Glenn writes, which is where you have this build up for 500 words and then talk about the meat of the story, and then like talk about buried lead. I'll get like 30% through one of Glenn's stories, and then finally the news comes into it, and you have had this sort of preface, which is a lot of people write like that because, uh, you know, it, it might not be best for the reader, but as a writer, you're sort of organizing, putting things in context, and trying to flow logically from point A to B to C. But David, um, I kind of think of you at your life. As Richard Gere in Runaway Bride.
1: Um, before, <laughs> <laughs> before I, I I was hated. I was hated in Denver. Widely hated. <laughs> so there were two newspapers when I started, and and there were Denver was just like this growing city. It was a very hip place to move to, and all, and it was just exciting for me to be there. And I think I moved there in two thousand and three and uh there were two papers they had a ton of, you know like subscription was through the roof and like right when i got there it started going downhill <laughs> by the time i left there were like 30 people at the paper you know and like one of the other the rocky mountain news is closed it was just a disaster yeah. um but you know in its day they had a lot of fun because i was the only person at the denver po- uh post really writing anything that would be you know i was say a libertarian-ish person but but i was the only one yeah and i'd write like Humor columns, and I had a lot of fun. This is a funny kind of story since we have no real topic to talk about. Is that I used to join all you know? (laughs) They take your column, and you join these like they put them into contests, you know, AP or whatever. And every time the judges were within the state, Colorado, I would never win anything. But whenever they sent them out, because you would do like Alaska would judge yours or Montana would and you judge theirs, that kind of thing, I would always win like a ton of awards. Which like. Made me think that the people in Colorado just hated my guts.
0: <laughs> this is pretty funny. Well, you they, actually wrote—they uh, did
1: not acknowledge my—they did not acknowledge my clear talent.
0: No, they just—they <laughs> you were ahead of your time, David. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> You're too advanced for them. Well, you wrote a column this week. Um, not it, it wasn't constrained to any number of inches, but you did write a column <laughs> about uh, basically the threats to the First Amendment, which. I wanted to ask you about in the context of this conversation, because I also wanted to ask you about Twitter and Elon Musk. And these are not, I guess, directly, directly related, um, In in a couple of ways, but in some ways, obviously, there's overlap Um, because I'm curious if you think an Elon Musk owned Twitter can channel the or can bring back the vibe uh, that the Internet had back in the day or help usher in um, a resurgence of of that kind of energy. But before we get to that, uh, can can you actually explain the threats you laid out to the First Amendment in your piece this week?
1: Well, it's interesting that you mentioned Glenn Greenwald, who I don't That's agree with. That's
0: what made me think of this
1: comment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who I don't agree with on much. But like, um, both, like, I'm not comparing my, t- you know, he's got this huge audience, but but any writer, even, you know, conservative writer like myself or, you know, whatever you want to call me, and, and you know, we agreed on certain, there were certain principles that writers, for instance, or intellectuals mostly or newspaper people for sure agreed on. And that was just that, You know, counter speech doctrine is a good thing that we need more, you know, more voices that that we don't censor people, um, that speech matters and that even hate speech should be should be protected. And just all these basic liberal ideas, you know, small L, good liberal ideas that that people who got into this profession agreed on. And uh, and that at some point that broke and it was recent where now obviously you have the media working against speech, journalists working against speech, tech, you know, tech CEOs and tech platform workers, you know, engineers and whatever their job titles are or were at Twitter undermining free expression. And I, I just think the big threat is this, you know, you don't there's the First Amendment and we all pretend to believe in it, but that. It, it won't mean anything if we don't actually admire, defend, idealize the underlying, you know, the underlying notions that make it so, that made made it be written down, that are liberal notions that I thought that we all used to agree on, most of us. So I don't know that's basically the column as for as for Musk. I mean, I am enjoying what's going on. I don't know how long <laughs> it's gonna last or like how uh Effective, he's going to be. But I love that he says stuff like, you know, that you know, this is the fight. <laughs> this is the without winning. Like if he doesn't win, c- you know, civilization is over. I forgot his tweet. It's like very over the top and very dramatic. But you know, I like it because I think that there the corroding of our belief in in these things is real. I don't think we're gonna like I wrote in the comment. I don't think we're gonna be Stalinist Russia or anything. But we're gonna be a less dynamic place, a less free place. Um, We're going to be more like Europe. And that is not a good thing. So hopefully he can at least his reach is immense. Right. What does he have like 100 million followers on Twitter or whatever? I hope he can at least convince others to start thinking uh, the right way against. I guess that's my that's my modest hope for for what's going on.
0: So our friends over in the integralist movement would argue that the inevitable arc of liberalism um, is the sort of unsustainable, nihilistic chaos. You can't have liberalism without without eventually getting to postmodernism, where we are now. Uh, Can you have Twitter (laughs) without inevitably landing um, in the sort of pre-Musk era? So say Elon Musk fixes Twitter. (laughs) Um, is Twitter fundamentally an asset to the political discourse? Uh, my answer to that question is just a hard no. I think anybody who wants to help, uh, not just the discourse but the planet, should nuke Twitter from orbit. Uh, but that said, uh, in the spirit of the conversation we were having about, you know, the the a different time on the internet, um, Twitter came out in about 2006. I think a lot of people started getting on it around 2009, especially in in media. Um, can Twitter exist? in a in a good way or will it inevitably sort of always fall into uh being a a drag on the country
1: yeah i mean i guess i disagree with you that i i actually think it's good for the discourse in a way it's also quite it's also quite odious in other ways (laughs) like the way that it makes us act as human beings and stuff but setting that aside for a moment i think that uh what you have is uh someone who's older like me remembers that there used to be only three television stations and these gatekeepers that just did not allow you um to have a voice to 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 understand understand what was going on in any real way quite often about certain issues it was a lot worse it was stifling and you had newspapers maybe where i lived where i grew up in new york you know you had a bunch of different kind of newspapers but in a lot of towns you had maybe one or two and they just You know, we're we're basically liberal and told you we're left wing, left leaning and told, you know, and, and gave you this biased view of the world. And it was very difficult for people to have a voice. Now, with all of Twitter, with all of the terrible things that come along with with social media, it also gives people a voice that they didn't have. I don't know that Donald Trump is president in 2015 if Twitter didn't exist. And um it allows people to circumvent the gatekeepers, the establishment and, and have a voice. And I think that it in, you know, that that's important to remember when we talk, about, when people romanticize, you know, like as they do the 70s, where, where we didn't even get news. Now, maybe it's better that fewer people are involved <laughs> in thinking about politics. I mean, I, I'm willing to concede that. I think we think about it and we talk about it way too much. Um, but. We should remember that we have a lot more say than before. Like, if you remember, the whole Dan Rather thing was led by bloggers. And that was like the first time that they were able to debunk something big. Right. And they've done that. We do that now every day. And we have we have, you know, not we, but, you know, people out there. and, And that's important.
0: This story is unbelievable, unbelievable until you discover the larger mechanics at play. Last month, the late co-founder of Microsoft, Paul Allen, sold his art collection for the record-breaking sum of $1.6 billion. How, as most other markets and investments struggle, is fine art hitting record highs? Well, because it's got a low correlation to other investments, so when they take losses, your art investments don't have to. Masterworks knows this. That's why they qualify their paintings with the SEC, so you have security while you invest in art on their platform. It's also how Masterworks has been delivering real results this year, selling seven paintings. Their last three sales have delivered 13, 17, and 21% net returns to their investors. As a result, Masterworks even has a wait list, but you can skip it at masterworks.art federalist that's masterworks.art slash federalist see important reg a disclosures at masterworks.com cd That's actually kind of what I was getting at is and I've been thinking about this a lot recently and I know you and Molly like to talk about, um, you know, various decades at length and I I really want to emphasize length, Um, but (laughs) (laughs) it it would be if it were a column, it would be the size of California. But no, I I think there may have been, so like blogs, for instance, are not designed uh, to be like to function as slot machines. They're not designed to be addictive. They're not designed to maximize the amount of time that you spend on a blog. Whereas with Twitter, there's this real gamification, I think, of the discourse that affects a lot of journalists um, and pushes them into, you know, tendencies that while I'm glad their biases are exposed, I think they now have tendencies that they may not have, at least may not have been able to act on um, in prior eras um, or wouldn't have even been brought out of them i don't know it's it's kind of an impossible thing to say um but do you get uh, is there tolerance if not excitement and encouragement for taylor lorenz at the new york times the washington post the atlantic um of 20 years ago i don't know um it's hard to say but is there sort of was there a sweet spot in our culture with like technology but specifically in this context of uh, media and Political conversation, political discussion, um, before social media really came along and and used thing like specific tools. Like the retweet button, which the guy who built it has basically since sen- said, like, I unleashed the devil on America. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but um, where it's happening on these, like the mechanics are designed to, to keep us addicted, to gamify it. Was there a sweet spot when it was just the blogs? And, and is that something that maybe people should want to come back?
1: Well, two things. Probably, yes. I think all the uh, journalists have all the wrong incentives on Twitter. The worst people thrive. So the more, you know, the more trolly you are, the more crazy you are, the more followers you get. Taylor Lorenz, I don't think that she survives in a newspaper in the 80s or 70s when there were standards um, of journalism. <laughs> you know, now there aren't. So all that's true. I think uh, it it incentivizes bad behavior. When 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 there are layoffs at the let's say the Washington Post, real reporters are going to get laid off. The guy who covers uh, you know the local judiciary, he's going to get laid off, or she's going to get laid off, and Jennifer Rubin will still be there probably, right? So I, you know, so the whole thing's upside down. But what are you going to do? I mean, that's capitalism. But the problem with all of this is that in the way you framed it, I, I don't disagree with what you're saying. It's that once something exists, I don't spend too much time thinking about what it would be like in the world if it didn't exist, because that never happens. You know, the you retu- put the
0: genie back in the bottle. <laughs> right.
1: The retweet button exists. It's never going away. We have to try to figure out how to either game the system that exists or use it in a a more constructive way. No, No one ever invented anything and then said, you know, that was popular. And obviously, social media is hugely popular and said, "Oh man, you know this sucks let's shelve this for a while, you know and move on with something new. It just doesn't happen that way so I, I don't really even know how to answer questions like that to be honest i do i I think it does incentivize bad behavior I think it's bad for journalism in many ways. I think it's good that people have a voice and i I don't even like the people, but I think democratizing <laughs> democratizing journalism wasn't a terrible idea uh but no, I
0: think democratizing journalism, I think, is one of the best things that's ever happened to the media. but it did seem to take a dark turn somewhere around the line where, where Twitter and Facebook um, started when there was like a point of critical mass maybe on both sides. Like,
1: like is it Twitter that's propelling that that kind of behavior and or is it just a reflection of how we are right now as a nation? I don't, I don't know. It's not real life. I know this is very cliche to say, but again, I always remember when I go out there into the real world, which I don't do that often. But when I do, I meet people. <laughs> they do you know are.
0: Mills, we get about uh, how you, like you can make new friends. Like you can do it, David.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know, like that. Like I want to, but. Um... <laughs> Like I saw people, like like I saw my coworkers and wonderful colleagues who I, you know, I love and and all that are sending like Christmas cards out. I'm like, damn it, now I have to do this too. Do I have to like personalize them? I've no, I don't know how to do this. Anyway. There's
0: no way any of them are getting one from me. Yeah, that, that's just it's, <laughs> give, give it up, David.
1: Um, what was I talking about? But yeah, so so I, I don't know that it's a reflection of how we would really act in the in the world, and, and that's a bad thing because. Um, we can't get anything done in politics, and I'm not one who's like, we need bipartisan bills to be passed. But the, 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 the level of distrust and the anger within parties themselves, especially the Republican Party, where, where a lot of Republicans hate their own party more maybe than they hate anything else in the world, is an unhealthy environment for any kind of constructive you know, political movement or, or anything else.
0: Barry Weiss had an interesting or published an interesting uh, reflection on uh, the, her experience sifting through the Twitter files and, and getting contacted by Elon, Elon Musk going through these files uh, with Michael Schellenberger, Matt Taibbi, Abigail uh, Schreier and others at Twitter headquarters um, in this sort of tight time period. Uh, in recent days, and that's up on her new site, the Free Press, which used to be Common Sense her, her Substack. It's now sort of both a Substack and a website. And she says something interesting, which is that it, it's kind of a mirror how the Twitter files have played out is kind of a mirror um, of the problem. In media more generally right now, which is that you have two camps that have two sets of alternate facts. Uh, Whereas like on the it's not on the left, it's just in the legacy corporate media and on the left they're always on the same page when it comes to these things. Um, This is a gosh they use the word nothing burger over and over again. This is this has been basically a blip. We knew all of it. Um, You know some of it is good if anything. People just trying to do their jobs. uh, Just really a non-story. And on the right as Barry pointed out, people have been treating it as the most important story in the news for about a week. And that, I have to wonder, is is that in and of itself kind of fueled by Twitter? Um, because reporters spend you know their days on Twitter. It's like the old uh, instant messenger, but it's now all playing out in public with your blue check next to it. Um, I just thought that was kind of an interesting point that like is our inability to talk about the problems with Twitter, because of Twitter? Like, the, am I getting a little too meta there? Like, can, can we can we do this anymore? Like, can we even fix Twitter in a world where Twitter exists?
1: <laughs> That's a good question, actually. Uh, probably not. I, I, I would say this, like, sometimes, like, the, the bubbles that have formed really, really are problematic for anyone who wants to be an intellectually curious person and uses Twitter to do that. So, for instance, sometimes I'll see some someone say something and then I look at the comments and I'm blocked from they'd be like ten accounts down and blocked from everyone. Like every big liberal writer like blocks me. Even though I don't <laughs> e- ever use like ad hominem attacks on anyone or anything. Um, they don't even want to hear it from you because No one challenges them to look at another perspective where they work. No one challenges them to take into account what other people think, and they no longer have to do that because they've convinced themselves around 2015, but really earlier, that the other side is just fascistic. We need one party rule, you know, all of that stuff. So they don't even – take any of that into consideration. And the, it's the same on the other side, let's be honest. I mean, most of the times, you know, you just hear from the people that you agree with. It reinforces all your priors and, you know, and, and it kind of fuels anger. And sometimes you get all worked up about a story that maybe isn't as big a deal. Now, I don't think the Twitter files is it's is the biggest thing that's happened. In fact, most of it, it's just confirmation, I think, of what we already knew was going on there. I do think it's it's in, in a worthwhile to cover. And what did, like, I saw one, that maybe the top three networks had like one story on it. Maybe I forget, I forget what, what it was, but that's clearly, um, and, and I wrote about this as well. I don't, actually, I don't believe that they're that those people, the producers, the editors, people that always think about the reporters, but there's a hierarchy there. And, and, and you know, editors can tell reporters to cover stories they don't because they don't even understand what the problem, they don't understand why banning, some fascist who wants to overturn democracy is a problem like they don't i don't think they understand or think about the first amendment as a neutral principle anymore like i said they don't believe in counter speech doctrine they don't believe that 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 having a a, a vibrant discussion about stuff even if there are some ugly voices in there is 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 a is a social good and you know so you know it gets us back to the original thing we were talking about
0: just imagine trying to have a conversation with one of these folks about how the ACLU used to defend KKK members like <clears throat> parading in Skokie, right? Like it, you, you can't even have that conversation anymore because that value has just been so thoroughly discredited by them. It would be like entirely alien and, and silly and even violent, right? So like when you classify and condition people to classify that level of speech protection as um, – enabling violence or as violence in and of itself you know there's no there is no middle step between enabling and actually being violence it's all just violence uh it becomes kind of impossible to bridge the gap and even have that conversation and you know, Barry confronted Elon a little bit about what it's like to just sort of switch control from one billionaire to another. And he was game, you know, to talk about it. He was like, yeah, I'm open to, to new ideas. So we'll see on that front what actually ends up happening. Uh, but uh, we, in our list, but right we need,
1: we need it. the billionaire just don't we? I mean, yeah, we need, yeah, right. we, that's the only way to fight this. I, 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 who else, like build your own Twitter doesn't work. Right? right. So the only way you could fight back was to have someone by twitter but like i just quickly say you 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 hit on like speeches of violence stuff i mean that would have been like 20 years ago when i started out anyone liberal or not who worked as a journalist or thinker or writer would have laughed at that idea that is was not no serious person would say that that's something like a person who had like a you know, a Berkeley like like yeah, staple staple together like a a, a, a z- zine, uh, you know, in Berkeley would <laughs> would would have thought no normal person. But now it's completely normalized, mainstreamed idea, and that's a huge problem because those people who were stapling together those zines they're the ones who are now running stuff right and that's that's the big problem a zines like is that like a 90s thing does anyone know what that is very 90s yeah (laughs) it's a
0: but yeah they used to be relegated to the fringes of academia and that's exactly what i was going to say is that you and i and our listeners are pretty clear-eyed about where the seeds of all of this were planted and other other people thought well you know they would their path to growth would always be obstructed you know they'd never be able to break through the dirt but again um a lot of people on the right knew that would never be the case. And of course they would be able to break through the dirt to continue torturing that metaphor. Um but I I wanted to ask you, this is going to sound like a really weird transition, but Last night, video was going viral of John Boehner weeping as he spoke at Nancy Pelosi's uh, portrait unveiling. Uh, because we know that Nancy Pelosi is stepping down from her post in House leadership, um, she's still going to serve, probably going to give her seat, uh, leave her seat in, for one of her daughters. I think is what's been speculated, um, not too far in the future. But it was going viral in sort of journal circles, and I saw some people with their sort of strange new respect for John Boehner um, in the center and center-left. It was a, a strange, strange moment. Uh, but it gets to what you were talking about, David, this like concept of the uniparty, uniparty control that uh, the people like John Boehner had no idea that at some point we would have a culture where you can't even talk about uh, the ACLU's defense of the KKK in Skokie um, because that's not a value that we share as a country anymore. And in fact, the incentives have been so shifted um, that you can't even like, again, like what were they doing when all of this was happening? And you may have a take on and you might say, well that's totally unrelated they shouldn't have been doing anything um and i don't mean that to be facetious what do you mean doing anything, anything
1: been... about what the culture what do you mean?
0: like uh, so, so they did nothing so like they did nothing yeah, but, but what at, was happening in higher education
1: uh, well i mean but at the when boehner was running things i mean there were story after story calling him a nihilist because he used the um the debt ceiling, you know, to try to gain, get something. I mean, it wasn't like they loved him. Then, then they made him out to be, a, you know, a radical as well, or at least someone who surrendered to the radical Tea Party types who they hated at the Keller. time. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, Paul. I mean, he, these are moderate squishes, basically. Like, I, I realize people hate Paul Ryan, whatever. I mean, I, I, I don't. I guess sometimes I just don't understand politics because I don't really care about the person. Like, he, he could be a robot. He almost is a robot. Right. Ryan, so like, but I cared that he wanted to reform social security. Right. And I think that that's something we needed to do. That's obviously never going to happen in this country until we go bankrupt. But, um, so I don't understand the kind of hatred people have for Boehner or Ryan or or anyone really, even Trump or, you know, or any, or Obama. Um, but I do hate their policies. And he was the biggest squish. He was always crying. He was always giving in. He was a complete he's the, he's a kind of person that made that brought us that got us Trump, you know, to, 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 to go into that cliche again. But um, and he was hated by the media. Now, now he's beloved the same way that Goldwater was hated and beloved. And Reagan was hated and then beloved. And, who, and Trump one day will be like, you know, compared to the you know, compared to whoever, you know, whoever's running now, he wasn't that bad. I mean, they do this all the time.
0: Yeah, with Boehner and Pelosi, and and there's just been a lot of, I finished watching the Pelosi documentary on HBO that her son, her her son, our father, Alexandra. (laughs) Uh, Did you watch Journeys with George when it came out? No. Uh, Okay. Yeah. You would hate it. Um, It it, it is at least more interesting than someone uh, documenting uh, the travails of their own mother. um, And I, I, you know, I'm
1: just so sick of this. Like, eh. so what is that on HBO max? Probably.
0: Yeah. It's on HBO. Right. So
1: like, it's like one documentary after the next on these, you know, on these channels that glorify terrible people like Nancy Pelosi. Like I, I don't, I never bought into this. Oh, tip O'Neill and Reagan met, you know, and they got stuff done. First of all, that's not true. (laughs) Um, really, in the way that it's presented. Secondly, these people like Nancy Pelosi, who I have nothing personally, I mean, I do have something personal, I guess, against her. And it's not her specifically that that I'm mad about. I'm mad about that she does things that actually affect people, hurt people in in ways that matter, and, you know, more than uh, Kanye or something. And then I'm supposed to pretend that she's just this, This icon and we're supposed to celebrate her. It's just annoying to me. And it's annoying to me that we constantly and it goes back historically. I'm all over the place. Just forgive me. But like (laughs) this, when I was growing up, Woodrow Wilson was a hero, right? Like Mm -hmm. an icon. FDR was. And these are the two most fascistic people who have been president in the United States. They make Donald Trump look like a complete piker. They make Biden look like a piker. And I have to celebrate them, and and they do this all the time. Nancy Pelosi, my grandkids are going to read books, you know, see documentaries about how wonderful she was, and it's it's a big problem that conservatives don't have the cultural reach to to celebrate their own people. Sometimes you'll break through with a Reagan or something, but it's incredibly rare. And this is why we don't have. Well, this is why every second street is named after Warren Harding, our greatest president. <laughs>
0: I, I just want to end it there, like cut every, every,
1: everyone always laughs at that when I'm completely serious about. It. No, I know, I know you're, I'm <laughs> laughing
0: because you're serious. <laughs> if I thought you were joking, I would be like that was not a great joke. But the fact that you're serious is exactly what's funny.
1: <laughs> no, I'm serious. I mean, and not just him. There are many great, like Clarence Thomas won't be treated in the same way that uh, our uh, what RBG is treated, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, they'll, you know, he'll be. He'll be controversial. That's like the euphemism for conservative. And, you know, it just gets annoying after a while
0: yeah Pelosi's a good example I mean hBO ran this documentary called the Swamp which is like the most unusual documentary that you will see we had the the guy on who was behind it um which was basically followed rokana Matt Gates, Thomas Massey like enemies of the establishment in washington d c it was much better than the Pelosi documentary although there's a moment in the Pelosi documentary where she is talking to donors it looks like she's talking to donors and uh, this summer I want to say this is it might, it might be twenty. 20 or it could be 2018 where she's saying we didn't win it must have been 2020 because um, I think she was referencing 2018 and said we didn't win by becoming more liberal um, we won on the economy like we're talking about the economy we didn't win by you know, she's basically saying we didn't win by embracing the squad fully um, and when we look back on you know Nancy Pelosi's leadership we look back on the last what 20 years um, it, it's like the the looking at the vaccine mandate being justified through a very obscure part of the OSHA legislation, the legislation that created OSHA. Um, all Nancy Pelosi, the Nancy Pelosis and John Boehner's of the world have done is created an environment where the government can more easily encroach on people's freedoms can exploit them and uh, this is where you may disagree with me i would say where corporations are, are doing the same thing um it's, it's an environment where it was easier for tech to come in and start wielding its power in the way that we saw we're learning from the twitter files have it ha- had happened that facebook had ha- that has happened with facebook um and that's why it's just to me i mean i think it it's as nauseating um but even in that context of just sort of you know, what What they didn't do um, and what they did do. I mean, the combination of both of those things is fairly nauseating.
1: Well, that's a lot to take. And I would say this, that just on the core corporations, I think corporations are actually far weaker now, and there's far more of them than before. But tech corporations are very powerful. And the way that we can weaken them is by untethering their them from government. Now, this is very difficult to do because when you have someone who works for the fbi then go work for twitter <laughs> you're essentially in bed with each other this has always happened though with big corporations i i just you know again I, I argue with a lot of people on the right about this i just don't think empowering government in any more ways is going to be helpful in the long run just giving bureaucracies more power and and, and uh leftists are far better at running it now you said something about pelosi in this documentary saying that she that we had won on the economy and, we, and not moving left i mean by any standard they have moved left right i I just think that's a fantasy she's just playing for the cameras probably right
0: well i mean oh it's a great overton window example right that she's saying we well we didn't go as far left as bernie so we won on the economy i've i i interpreted
1: it yeah that's the game they play with Take for for instance the um was the big bill they wanted to pass recently i forgot what it was called through reconciliation like five true so bernie wants it wants 5 trillion and they, you know, and they really, they pull it back to a more reasonable 2 trillion, you know, (laughs) and, but, but also it's the same thing with Obamacare. These are all games because these things last forever. When you, you know, you have some, you, you do some accounting trick where, you know, you're, you're counting the, you know, 10 years instead of 20 and this and that, to bring the price down. But in the end, no welfare program is, 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 um, is pulled back every time you spend that's going to be the new baseline and anything else will be a cut and and republicans are too cowardly to ever cut a government program and now i'm not even sure they would want to do that anyway um so yeah again i don't even know what we're talking about that's upsetting
0: no no this is a perfect this is a perfect (laughs) point of uh this is a perfect full circle moment because that's exactly what i was getting at is basically um you know the the power of The state ultimately, yeah. So, like, if you want to transfer the power of Twitter to the government. Um, you're just as mistaken as those who who want Twitter to have all of the power that it does, because both of those institutions um, are are not at a time, at, at this time, really at any time, capable of wielding that power um, in a way that's more democratic uh, than if you erode the power in the first place. Uh, and so that's just a little. Um, I yeah. guess that's that's both of our our critiques of some folks on the Can right. Can I give
1: now. you a quick example? By the, all means, the, the fairness doctrine on on public ra- you know airwaves and radio for many many years there was something called the fairness doctrine that would be- essentially dictate that you had to give both sides of every opinion on say a radio station. It wasn't until they got rid of that 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 you saw the rise of Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity and all these you know voices in. In, in radio that completely changed the way we spoke about politics and the environment and you know conservatives just flocked to radio which was you know which they had not before so it kind of changed the whole, dynamics of politics in the nineties, basically. So a fairness doctrine is abused by the state. First of all, you and I, mm-hmm. for instance, disagree on a ton of stuff. We're not on this. You can't have two people squaring off on each opinion because there are multitudes and a spectrum of opinions on, on everything. So it, it it's the kind of thing that I don't think you could, And what I mean is when you, if you try to dictate a, you know, s- fairness of speech on social media, It's just you're not going to be able to do it. The best you can do is hope for some kind of neutrality of speech, in my opinion, at least, and and let people, you know, have their say. And even that's very difficult because I I just don't think that the state should be empowered to tell, you know, a private company who can speak or can't speak. I think it's a First Amendment issue. And obviously many people disagree with me on that. But yeah, yeah so no
0: that 's no that's that 's uh, because Elon Musk this was in barry 's piece today, basically said that Twitter was being run as an activist company. All they wanted to do was stay above water, uh, make enough money to break even, um, but be, they were a blunt force object basically to be wielded as a an advocacy group on behalf of the ideas and the values that they supported and you know, people on the right would say neutrality is, an, is in and of itself a value, but we've already seen, uh, that's a kind of a game of semantics. Uh, we've already seen what a more neutral version of Twitter looks like. Um, and it's what it looked like before it got completely taken over by crazy people. And it worked just fine, even if advertisers in this in this environment are going to be a little bit squeamish. Um, th- that's just because they have a misinterpretation of what the marketplace actually looks like and, and of their own consumers. So at the end of the day, I don't want Nancy Pelosi or John Boehner or Jack Dorsey or Elon Musk uh, to have as much power as they do. Um, But, you know, I don't I don't want to give the Nancy Pelosi's or John Boehner's uh, more power either, certainly than they already have.
1: The the marketplace in tech is is perverted in the sense that people cannot. There are people who don't care about making. They already have enough money. They make enough money. They don't care enough. And they're ideologues as well. So, you know, it's not about if it was just about profit margin, the world would be an incredible place, but it's not, there are other things that people care about. And um, as far as business goes, so that's a problem for sure. And that's a good thing now with Elon, right? He doesn't, Mm -hmm. he has has more money than he knows what to do. People have that much money don't even think about money in the same way you or I do. So he doesn't care that much. And he is kind of an ideologue about certain things, even though honestly, he's basically just an old fashioned liberal. Like he's a liberal from like 19, or 2003 probably or something like that right so um but yeah yeah.
0: well david harsani i think we've exhausted our uh, exercise in, you, in circular logic you're
1: you're 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 um yeah you are amazing at this your uh, your interviews are amazing <laughs> i'm not joking i'm being clear, but it's funny yeah, there's a lot of tautology there for me probably. But the thing is this. Um we didn't plan to speak about anything. And there was no like you didn't even say this is what we're going to talk about and you pulled out what is that? An hour of us talking. It's amazing. Yeah, well,
0: I actually so I people are constantly kind of asking um you know what is advice for podcasts lots of people want to start podcasts and they're they're really very like self-serious about it and i understand why like they, they want to put a lot of planning into it and they think it's it, it is a lot of work um but not a ton on the like topic front because i genuinely think our better episodes are when it's a free-flowing conversation that's not sort of restricted by- this is not
1: one of your better episodes i'll tell you that right now but <laughs> uh, but yeah I think off the cuff stuff is the best. I mean, I know the one I do with Molly weekly, you know, the more we plan, probably the more the, the stiffer it will be and, and right, it, it will right. be less fun. Yeah, for sure. So, um, but no, but you, you do a great job. You have a great guests. I'm not just saying that. I just wanted to, you know, sort of let you know.
0: That's so kind, David. Thank uh, you. Every, I love what you and Molly are doing and the listeners love what you and Molly are doing. So uh, thank you for joining us today and thank you for uh, coming in every week and doing the show. Anytime. All right, don't forget to catch You're Wrong. It's usually Wednesdays and Thursdays, or Wednesdays or Thursdays, I should say, with Molly and David. Um, I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist, joined today by my colleague, da- colleague David Harsani, the senior file. editor at The Federalist, and co-host of You're you Wrong. We will be back soon fly. with more Federalist Radio Hour. Until oh, then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fry. Today.